Okay. Um, okay. Welcome. <coughs> Hello and welcome to uh, to our lunch debate uh, today. Uh, we will be discussing today achieving inclusive growth. What have we learned? Um, and it's my real pleasure and great honor to welcome Taman Shanmugaratnam, um, Deputy Prime Minister uh, of Singapore. Singapore is actually a very interesting state. If you haven't visited, you should. Uh, it's, very, it's very nice to go there, but it's also very interesting for its strategies um, in achieving inclusive growth, uh, reducing um, inequalities, ethnic inequalities, income inequalities, um, improving education policies, and so on. And so it's a real privilege and honor today to, uh, to have the Deputy Prime Minister here with us um, to, to spend perhaps half an hour with his uh, speech to, to explain the strategies um, that Singapore has embarked on and, is, uh, and uh, quite successfully embarked on. And then I will uh, have the pleasure of reacting to a few points. Um, but of course, I also want to bring in uh, you, the audience, and get you to react to uh, and ask questions, make comments um, uh, to, to what you have heard. So without much further ado, Deputy um, Prime Minister, thank you so much for coming. And uh, the floor is yours. You. Well, let me stand here, since it's uh, rostrum. Uh, but thank you very much for inviting me in Guntram. Actually, it's a bit funny standing here. Maybe I'll just sit here and talk. Yes, you like. I suppose it's fine. Yeah. No, it's useful to stand there if you're reading from a speech, but if you're not, then it's uh, better to sit down. Right. So thank you for inviting me. Um, I, I think uh, we are living at a time which we uh, think of in terms of political surprises. Um, and there are political surprises, but it's useful to take a step back uh, and recognize that things have been adrift for a long time. Uh, and what seem like surprises in the political sphere uh, are really a culmination of uh, long-standing trends. It's not as if it's deterministic, it's not as if everything is predicted, nothing is predictable. But it's these long-standing trends that we should really get our minds around and which we should really get our policies around. Uh, I don't need to go into the details, but I think we know what they are. Middle class income stagnation. Um, in much of the advanced world, not every country, but much of the advanced world, uh, Stasis in social mobility. In some countries, a decline in social mobility. In other countries, just long-term stasis at rather low levels. And you see this in the United States, you see this in the UK, you see this in most European countries. Even uh, European countries which we regard as egalitarian in their social policies um, uh, have seen a remarkable stasis in social mobility. That's the second long-standing phenomenon. And it's not just about um, the studies and the data on mobility. <coughs> People sense it. And when you combine those first two trends, when you combine the <coughs> slowdown in income growth or virtually no real income growth in many societies 
with the lack of social, social mobility, uh, that combination is something people feel. Uh, weak social mobility feels different when everyone is moving up, when you have absolute social mobility. When every, everyone's moving up, uh, the fact that you've got uh, encrusted class structures doesn't have quite the same potency. But when people are not moving up anymore, and when the pie is not growing bigger, then this lack of reshuffling from one generation to the other becomes very potent. And that's perfectly understandable. Uh, a third trend that's been happening for quite a while is the loss of a sense of togetherness in society. If you think back to the period after the war, whether you're talking about the US or Europe, most of the advanced societies, there was a very strong sense of togetherness. It, people talked in terms of we. It was we. Now it is increasingly them and us. In the US, it's rural, urban. There's an ethnic dimension. In Europe, I think you know what I mean. It is no longer we. It is increasingly them and us. Not every society, but there is that drift. And it is a global drift. That too is important. And it's not recent. It shows up in recent political phenomena, but it's not recent. A political scientist in the US, for instance, uh, see the major break as having taken place in the 60s, sometime in the mid to late 60s, that, that rift in society. And the fourth trend is the declining trust in institutions, the institutions of democracy, the institutions of um, modern societies. And declining trust in government is an extremely important part of that. Again, it is not recent. It goes back, it's been a drift that's been taking place over a long period of time. And there's good data on this as well. It shows up today in questions to do with globalization, questions to do with a commitment to an open world order. But what is striking is that there are very important differences in the way in which countries are coping with globalization and making the most of globalization uh, to benefit their citizens. Not every country is, in fact, responding the same way. There's a reason why in Europe, Switzerland and Sweden have lower rates of unemployment and, in fact, income growth that is not seen in some other parts of Europe, not seen in the United States, not seen in the United Kingdom. There's a reason why in my part of the world, in Asia, uh, Singapore has managed so far to sustain significant median income growth as well as income growth for the bottom 20%. It's not because we are special. It's not because we're not exposed to globalization. In fact, these small economies are even more exposed to globalization and certainly very exposed to technological change. <coughs> the heart of the matter has to do with domestic policies. And that's the inconvenient domestic fact of globalization, that domestic policies are what differentiates the countries that are doing well with globalization or able to cope with it well 
and distribute the benefits reasonably well from those that aren't. And that's the, a field of lessons that we must all try and derive. And I'll talk about a few uh, areas within the confines of this um, presentation. Uh, let me start with something which is not so conventional the topic to look at amongst economists, but is, is extremely important, which has to do with housing and neighbourhoods. Some of you may know the recent literature, especially coming out of the United States, about the criticality of neighbourhood composition. The degree of segregation in a neighbourhood has a very significant influence on social mobility. Everything else adjusted. In other words, adjusting for income levels, education of parents, and so on and so forth. Just the degree of segregation by ethnicity and other factors has an important influence on social mobility. If there's one, uh, and this is the only part of my presentation that has something a little unique about Singapore, and that has to do with housing and neighborhood strategy. Because we've gone for a model that involved the public sector taking on a developer role in order to sell housing units on the market, but treating every neighborhood as an exercise in social urban <coughs> planning. Not just urban planning, not just the right utilities and facilities, but social urban planning. And it's the secret source of Singapore. The fact that everyone is mixed in every neighborhood, from the poorest to the upper middle income group, in virtually every public housing neighborhood, which is 85% of Singapore's housing. It's public housing. But public housing in Singapore is not like social housing that you're familiar with. It's really like private condominiums anywhere in the world. But there are no fences and no gates. No fences and no gates, and everyone, everything on the ground level is public property. It's common, common property. But that mix of people from the poorest to the upper middle income group in every neighborhood is deliberate. In my own constituency, which is a fairly typical constituency near the industrial heartland of Singapore, the, the distance from my poorest apartment block, which is a rental block, a cluster of rental blocks, to the highest end of my constituency uh, is about 150 meters. And somewhere in between that, uh, you're already at well beyond the median in income levels. Large apartments, only four units on each floor, almost private access, not fully private, but it feels like private access because you have a lift serving just four units and they are positioned so they don't face each other. And then you've got landed housing, also in my constituency, and that's the 150 meters. If there's an intrusive part to our strategy, and an openly intrusive part, it was to also require ethnic integration in every neighborhood. And that's the most intrusive social policy in Singapore. We don't force people to live where they don't want to live. It's a, it's a market. But we have rules taking advantage of the fact that we are the developer. And the rules are that there's a cap on the proportion of any ethnicity in every single apartment block and every single precinct. It offends many 
prior beliefs. But let me say something to test, to test how offensive it is. You either intervene upstream or you intervene even more downstream in today's world. You either intervene upstream by intervening in the market, in designing rules, in ways that don't eliminate choice and let people live where they live, but within some constraints to ensure that you don't get segregation and you don't get people pulling apart from each other. And you either do it upstream or you deal with the problems downstream, which are not free market problems. And we all know that now much better than we did 10 or 20 years ago. So I leave that thought with you. But the other dimension of this housing strategy uh, is an economic one, which is intuitive. Because every neighborhood is integrated, lower income all the way to upper middle income, you've got in Singapore disadvantaged individuals, disadvantaged families, some people who are poor and stuck in poverty, but we do not have a single disadvantaged neighborhood. You've got disadvantaged families, but not a single disadvantaged neighborhood. And what that does is it gives us something for free in economic terms. <coughs> Housing equity appreciation is the same for every group in society, from the smallest apartments to the largest and to the landed properties. If I take my constituency or any constituency in Singapore, appreciating at roughly the same rate linked to economic growth, linked to the state of the country. And you get that for free. The lack, the avoiding that gulf in wealth <coughs> that otherwise is part of the natural workings of the market when a neighborhood is a disadvantage and a neighborhood is salubrious and gentrified and uh, otherwise advantaged. The right social urban planning gives us so many things for free. The economic that I just described, but also it avoids downstream problems that every society has to deal with. So that's housing. Second, uh, education. We all know how critical it is, but I'd like to pose a couple of issues which now we spend a lot of time on, and I spent five years as an education minister and I'm still in, heavily involved in it because it's our most important economic and social strategy in Singapore, as it is in most countries. We have to find a balance within school systems between sameness and differentiation. And it's a very important issue. There's great appeal in sameness, where everyone studies the same curriculum, everyone is proceeding at the same pace, and you don't differentiate students. Uh, France is a good example because of a very strong emphasis on egalite, egalitarianism in education. Everyone does more or less the same thing. But I've been studying this for some years, and you'll find that in most societies where everyone is doing the same thing in order to feel the same, the results are unfortunately very inegalitarian. The results are quite divisive for society and the workforce. So we have to find the right mix between differentiation and sameness. I would first say that I'm an advocate for a public schooling system. It's a cop-out to see the solution as private schools. It's a cop-out because we're not solving issues in public education. 
And there are ways, which in fact has been a whole strategy in Singapore, and much of my time as a Minister for Education was spent on this, there are ways of borrowing the lessons of private education, autonomy, looking at ways of shaping a curriculum around the needs of students, spurring students on in, in, in different ways depending on the leader of the school and the teachers in the school. There are ways of borrowing lots of these lessons, including even lessons in admission systems into the public education system. And that is, to my mind, a very important middle ground. Public education, accessible to all, meritocratic, but differentiated so as to cater to people of different abilities. If you overdo the differentiation, there's a risk of those who are not in the academically oriented pathways or tracks or streams feeling locked in or having their expectations lowered. If you separate students out into different schools altogether based on their abilities, there's a, there's a very easy risk given the natural workings of society of people feeling more separate from each other and a certain elitism being built in to people who go to the schools at the upper end. That can easily happen. But there is a middle ground within public schools Whereas within schools itself, you have some differentiation and you try to do it in a way that preserves fluidity. So you're never stuck on one track permanently. You're never locked in to one particular path. But you get a path which maximizes your ability to learn at each stage in life. And I pose that as an extremely important issue. I'm stating it in a, some, in a broad and almost conceptual way, but it's a very real issue. And I've seen many societies go for equality in education and getting very unequal outcomes as a result. One of the things I'm proudest about, about, proudest about Singapore's performance in PISA, and you know, we, you, we all know that these tests have limitations, but they're very useful. The thing I'm proudest about is that Singapore, which has a differentiated strategy in every school, does the best for its students in the lowest decile and the lowest quartile of performance. So students in the bottom quartile of Singapore's performance in PISA, in problem solving and other such tests, do better than the third quartile in Europe, for instance. And that's what I'm proudest about, that a strategy of public education, but allowing for differentiation, where we provide a realistic curricula and pace of learning for each student enables those who are traditionally weaker at a certain stage of their life at least to do better than otherwise. And that's the ultimate test. We've got to be fair to people. We've got to be fair to people, maximize their abilities and ensure that no one feels ultimately limited in terms of what they're capable of doing, but they're different pathways to learning and to developing your potential in life. Third topic has, well, extending the topic of education is a very critical issue of what's happening in tertiary education beyond schooling. And I think basically we've got to find ways of redressing the continuing drift into a regular college education. It started off as an Anglo-Saxon phenomenon 
and a very explicit goal of public policy, pushing as many people as possible into a college education. And even in the US, even the community colleges, which used to be rather applied colleges, are changing in their complexion so that they're now feeder schools into a regular four-year academic college. In Europe, there are major countries where college education, because it's free and has been expansive, uh, has not had very pretty conclusions at all. It's okay in France because you can get into college very easily. As long as you've passed your high school, you get in, it's virtually free. But it's okay in France because there's a brutal chainsaw massacre after the first year of college education. It's a terrible social policy, but you don't continue that wrong investment in people. We should avoid that in the first place. And I think the Northern European model, Switzerland, Germany, Austria, to some extent, some of the Scandinavian economies, the societies, have a model which respects the applied vocational and apprenticeship path. And there are variations. But in Switzerland, which is a classic example, over two-thirds of every cohort of 15-year-olds goes down the vocational path. So it's not just for those who are weak in academic learning, because this is two-thirds. It is the norm. And the Swiss, of course, have a unique history behind this, going back a very long way. But you see the same thing in Germany, to a lesser extent, but still a very rich tradition of respecting the path of apprenticeships, vocational education, now dual education, the universities of applied sciences, and then one layer, which is regular universities. We need different paths because the most modern market economy doesn't require that many people with general abilities or a broad-based education. The most modern and advanced economies, not just emerging economies, requires people with skills, skills which you deepen over the course of your life, over the course of your career. And we've got to find ways of pushing back against a model of the last 20 years, which has overemphasized to the detriment of family finances and state finances. But most importantly, it's not a financial issue. It's been to the detriment of maximizing individuals' potential by simply pushing more and more people through a regular university education. It's bad finance. But most importantly, it's not maximizing a person's potential. It's not maximizing the ability to contribute to society either. And the results are quite clear. In the United States, 45% of those who enroll in college don't complete. And there's unfortunately a socioeconomic bias there. And of those who do graduate, 45% are doing jobs that don't require a college degree. And you'll see roughly the same numbers in the United Kingdom and I know the picture in Europe isn't much better. So it's a fundamental issue. It seems egalitarian. It seems to be the liberal thing to do, to have as many people go to university. But it's a false liberalism. And it doesn't provide for a, more, a society where everyone has opportunities to develop themselves to the most. So that's education. Industrial policy is another very important issue. And it goes back to the point I was making about globalization 
and the challenges of technological change. We can't leave things entirely to the market. But between a fund market fundamentalism, which we've seen in some economies, and on the other hand, intervening to either pick winners or to bully individual companies, there is a very important middle ground. And that middle ground is one of developing clusters of capabilities in each of our economies that builds on our strengths, sometimes builds new strengths, but allows us to earn our keep in the world and allows us to all benefit from open, open economies. But you can't just leave it to the market because it's in the nature of international competition and it's in the nature of technological change that the losses and the dislocations are concentrated. They're not just distributed evenly across the whole society. They're concentrated in specific towns, in cities, in areas where an industry basically was replaced, jobs were replaced through new technologies, or demand shifted from some products to totally different products, or areas where international competition was able to do far more cheaply what we were doing before. It tends to be concentrated. And the market takes a very long time <coughs> to achieve that evening out across a society or economy. And sometimes it doesn't happen at all. Local strategy supported by federal or central strategies is critical. And there are examples. In France, there's a reason why Lyon, or more broadly the Rhône-Alpes region, is doing much better and has regenerated itself as a digital hub, whereas Lorraine is still stuck in a bad place. In Germany, there's a reason why all the towns around Stuttgart are thriving, likewise in Bavaria, whereas those in Mecklenburg, West Pomerania, Bremen are in a bad place, high poverty levels, etc. Same country, and I'm talking about the former Western Germany, but there's a reason for it. Local strategy, clusters of cooperation between higher educational institutions, enterprises, local chambers, and public leadership, local government and local politicians. It works better in some places than others, but it can work everywhere. <coughs> local strategy is a very important part of industrial strategy. The second very important area of industrial strategy, and here there's been some very good work by the ECB and others, one of the major underlying weaknesses in productivity, we know the productivity numbers. We know whether it's TFP growth or overall productivity, we know it's been slowing and is badly positive in many economies. But what is very important is that some sectors are doing well and some firms are doing very well and others are stuck close to zero. And the dispersion has widened <coughs> for reasons that are not fully understood. The dispersion both in levels and rates of growth or productivity between firms that are closer to the frontier 
and the rest in the base of an economy has widened over the last 10 to 15 years. It's true in the US, it's true in Europe, it's true generally in the advanced world. And the market, free market forces, are somehow not equilibrating. To get that equilibration, equilibrating mechanism, it means you don't have zombie firms. Firms close down when they're not doing as well. And when the rate of return is not as attractive as somewhere else, and capital gets reallocated, labor gets reallocated. But weak firms survive for a very long time on small margins, and wages suffer. And indeed, uh, the best studies show, both in the US, in Germany, and elsewhere, that a major source of wage inequality is really the inequality between firms. In other words, for the same job in a firm that's doing well in productivity growth, compared to the same job in a firm that's stuck close to zero, wages diverge. And wage inequality between firms is a major source of overall wage inequality in society. So we are tackling this both because it's critical for economic vibrance, but we're also tackling it because it's a social strategy. We'll need to have some redistribution. We probably need more of it in future than the past in a creative and intelligent way. But far more important to tackle this dispersion in productivity and help more firms participate in a technologically enriched world. And again, that's where we learn lessons from each other. I spent the last two days earlier this week in the area around Stuttgart. It's probably the world leader in Industry 4.0, machine-to-machine communication, human-machine interaction using collaborative robots, not just the traditional robots that are sort of safely placed away from humans. But what was fascinating to me was the way in which they are shaping learning factories that model these factories of the future and how new forms of learning are emerging. It's our most important strategy in Singapore. We call it skills future. Lifelong learning is the most important game for the future, in my opinion. Once we've sorted out the basics of education, we can't front load learning and expect that it allows an individual and a society to perform over the rest of our lives. We need to reinvest in people at intervals throughout their lives, at the workplace and outside the workplace in the community, in a way that's convenient to working adults, people who are stretched for time. How do you make it convenient? How do you make it affordable? How do you make it a way in which people feel their potential is never, has never ended. They can keep expanding their potential. And when they feel that they are stuck in the wrong place, the job doesn't suit them, there's a way in which they can switch. It's a very important field of public policy, but it involves new institutions and new methods. I was talking to a factory manager in a leading metal stand company in, um, outside Stuttgart. And I was talking to him about the way in which they ensure that workers can keep adjusting to the latest technologies because there's constant change. And he told me that what they often do is to pull in the whole team of workers 
into their seminar rooms that are part of the factory uh, for bite-sized learning, particular models. And I asked him, how long does that take? How long is a module? How long does it take to master a module? He said, half an hour. So it's really bite-sized. But what's critical is what you learn in that half hour, you immediately go back as a team and practice. And as we all know from the old adages, what you practice, you remember better. And what you practice immediately, you remember even better. But it's an example of the way in which lifelong learning is emerging, is, is evolving now. Bite-sized learning, three-month courses, which working adults find something that they can put time aside and sacrifice what they would otherwise be doing to just get that, that under their belts. But in fact, people go from one thing to another, accumulating modules over time, stacking them up over time. And that's a whole new field which we are putting a lot of emphasis on in Singapore. We've given every citizen an account of their own, a learning account, which we call a skills future credit, and it's for them to decide how to use it. Anything to do with learning. And if you don't use it, you lose it. And critically now working with companies to enable, and this is industrial strategy, it's not just learning strategy. If we talk about upgrading SMEs and allowing them to thrive in a technologically enriched world and a globalized world, it's about every person in the team. It's about upgrading workers continually in ways that are relevant to the job, and it's also about empowering individuals, as I say, by giving them their own account. So that's a very important area in public policy. So that's a third issue. I've covered education, including tertiary education. I've covered housing and neighborhoods, and I've covered industrial policy. But, you know, they hang together. They hang together. An economic strategy without a social strategy of ensuring that opportunities are provided for all is a weak strategy. We need both intersecting, and ordinary people don't have a concept of economic or social strategy. They have a concept of opportunities, getting a job, hoping the kids do well at school, but it all ties in together. And that's the way we have to formulate our policies, start from the individual, start <coughs> from the town and city, and provide a sense of opportunity. Intervene upstream, where necessary, in education, in housing, and in other areas, to prevent people feeling more apart from each other downstream. And it does mean, ultimately, that we have to reinvigorate the politics of the centre, not just through political strategy, but through economic and social strategy. And the politics of the centre, whether it's centre-left or centre-right, has to borrow from the lessons that are available on both the left and the right. Progressives, and I consider myself a progressive, have to recognise that societies have an internal drive that works best over time when certain basic conservative values are preserved. Individual responsibility, taking care of your family, saving for the future and not just spending it all today, and being responsible in the community, 
we consider them to be the values of the conservatives, but those were the values of all our societies not so long ago. And those on the centre-right have to appreciate that market fundamentalism has failed. You can't leave either... You can't leave those who are displaced by competition, either through domestic competition or international competition, to fend for themselves, because it is difficult. And you can't let society work out its own way of ensuring a certain cohesion. It doesn't happen. It's not part of the natural workings of society for people to feel more and more cohesive over time. So market fundamentalism doesn't work. You need a certain activism on the part of the state, at the centre, and in large countries at a local level. And that activism has to be focused on opportunity, on social mobility, on giving people the sense that they can develop themselves and they can contribute. It can't just be focused on redistribution. Ultimately, it has to be about regeneration of individuals and towns and societies. That's what gives people hope. It's what gives people hope. And it's this compact of individual responsibility and collective responsibility that I think offers us rich possibility for regenerating the politics of the centre as well. So I think I'll end there um, and be very happy to discuss any of the themes. Well, thank you very much, Tarman. I think that is a very rich set of, of issues that, that you have put on the table. And of course, um, it's extremely interesting to hear from you the experience uh, from, from Singapore. I want to react to a few points uh, uh, that you made and try to push you to, uh, to react to some of these, these points a little bit further. I mean, my first point would be, to what extent do you think the differences that you described in the way the models are structured, the economic models are structured, between on the one end, let's say, let's call it the continental European model, Stuttgart region, yeah, so let's say um, uh, the, the typical model uh, uh, of a mixed market economy where you have quite a bit of intervention of the state in the education system, vocational training, you have perhaps a regional policy, federal structure, regional, regional uh, development policies. You try to create some clusters. Um, you actually care about regional inequality quite a bit um, through transfer mechanisms, but also through explicit um, economic policies. So you have that, that kind of model on the one hand. Let's call it the Rhineland model, perhaps. Uh, perhaps that's a way of, of, of saying it. And then you have, of course, the uh, perhaps more market-driven Anglo-Saxon model. Is that the right way of, of thinking, of, uh, which you very much critiqued at the end by essentially saying, uh, you know, market fundamentalism doesn't work and, you know, we have to rethink um, the role, the relative role of the state and the market. So, so, so if you think that's the right sort of distinction between sort of the Rhineland model and let's say the, the French model has different, different ways of doing it, but there is also very strong state intervention into the economy, trying to shape clusters, trying to have a certain regional policy, and so on. Um, and uh, the, the Anglo-Saxon on the other side, um, would that be a source of hope uh, for um, 
let's say, the upcoming elections in Europe and so on in, on the continent? Because, I mean, there is there's clearly, I mean, if you look at big indicators like income inequality, there is a big difference between uh, the United States and the United Kingdom on the one hand um, and France and Germany on the other hand. I mean, there, there's clearly a significant differences in terms of income inequality, in terms of regional inequalities. So I, I guess that that would be my, my first point, um, and perhaps I can push you to, to react a little bit uh, more, more on that. Now, the second question is really about um, to what extent um, the local integration policies, housing policies and education policies that you have described, um, you know, that try to really, through the role of the state, prevent ethnic differentiation, I mean, de ethnic clustering um, uh, in Singapore, to what extent you think such policies um, can be successfully applied um, uh, in, in bigger states than Singapore? Um, so, so essentially in countries like uh, like France, uh, Germany, and, and, and UK, and the US, and <laughs> elsewhere. Um, and, I mean, to, to provoke you a little bit, um, perhaps it's a related, perhaps it's a different question, in, in fact, but they are related, it's, it's on the role of, um, of cultural factors. Um, of course, Singapore has also very unique um, model um, of uh, cultural model. Um, now, perhaps that model is different uh, in a number of countries uh, here in Europe, certainly. Um, and um, there's very big differences in, in values in the different uh, uh, communities um, that, that we do have here, here, here in Europe. Now, um, In the context of the refugee crisis um, or the refugee inflow that we've seen in 2015 uh, in, in Germany and other countries, many, many German conservative Germans were extremely critical of the inflow of refugees because of cultural um, uh, differences. And they were not so much, they were really making the point, and I, let me just refer, so mm -hmm. they were making the point, it's not my view, but they were making the point that these cultural differences ultimately will prevent successful assimilation and integration. And the argument, to put it very starkly, was we now claim in Germany that we will do um, the integration policy of refugees in a better way than France has managed uh, the inflow um, uh, for, for 50 years ago, um, but we will fail as France has failed. And that argument is made very strongly, and perhaps I can push you um, direct a little bit um, on, on these cultural differences, religious differences that also play a role, of course, in all of this. And, you know, get, get a bit your, your, reaction, your reaction on that. Um, I'm asking you lots of questions, so you can afterwards talk for one hour. So, so uh, uh, I don't want to talk too long, but, but uh, there's, there is the point... Um, that struck me very much that I think is a very important and strong point that you're making is this upstream versus downstream policy. And I think, I mean, basically everybody in this room would, would agree that prevention is better than fixing the problem afterwards. Um, but I think many would also say um, we are not in the upstream phase, but in the downstream phase, right? So... Um, and the upstream phase, I mean, was perceived in many countries not to be an upstream phase. So when um, the Turkish immigrants came to Germany, 
the German attitude was, we have workers coming that will go back to Turkey, and that was, of course, a to totally wrong attitude, um, uh, because, of course, migrants come and stay. Um, but um, that attitude was very strong, and that's why nobody uh, did any upstream policy, because basically it was just thought, the immigrants were just thought of being, being workers, but, but now um, we, are, we, are, we, are, we are where we are. We have very significant immigrant populations in many countries, which are often very clustered, where often uh, some of the problems you describe um, are quite, quite prevalent. Last but not least, um, I want to push you a bit on sort of the global scenery um, in which we are living. And I think you described very well sort of the common thread of problems that we are all observing, um, middle class stagnation, uh, lower productivity growth, the pie is not growing, um, dissatisfaction, mistrust to, into institutions, sense of togetherness in society falling. Now there's one country where at least the official policies seem to be signaling different things, and that's, that's China. China is not going out there and uh, um, becoming more protectionist, protectionist um, uh, moving away from the world, but on the contrary um, is pushing the globalization agenda and is pushing forward and, and actually believes that globalization is part of the answer and not part, part of the problem. Um, and of course, you also said, and it's a very remarkable sentence, and I, I want to repeat it to you because I don't think you, you, you noted how remarkable this is in the, in the European context, uh, but also in the US context. You said domestic policy is key to address all of these things. Um, so it's not the trade policy, but it's the domestic policy that was your very strong argument. If you think about the debate on Brexit, no, it's not the domestic policies. All the evils in the United Kingdom are due to the European Union. And many, of course, in this city say, um, we are looking forward, they are looking forward to the moment when the UK is on its own and responsible for its own problems, including education policy, which is, of course, made in, made in Britain and not, not here. Um, so, so clearly, um, I mean, they, there's clearly sort of a different view here in... China in, in Singapore, you know, basically we have to get our own domestic policies right and then strive in the global economy, whereas the UK, the US seem to go in a different direction. Let's undo globalization or ret uh, retract from globalization and that will fix our problems. Perhaps you can comment a little bit more on um, um, the nexus trade, um, globalization and, and inequality and inclusive growth. Good, thank you. Um, perhaps taking your points in turn, uh, I think you put it in an interesting way, this difference between what you call the Rhineland model and the Anglo-Saxon model. Uh, I think descriptively that, uh, that has some uh, coherence. Um, uh, I would say that uh, uh, market fundamentalism, uh, for uh, historical reasons, um, emerged first in the UK and the US. The US always had a bit more of that free-spiritedness and uh, uh, people coping for themselves and moving around the country when to look for jobs and opportunities. But in the UK, I think it was tied up with a period of uh, uh, early deindustrialization uh, and uh, the uh, reaction 
to an old model of social democratism, which was really old labor. Um, it's very hard to understand why there was such strong support for Thatcherism without also understanding why people were rejecting the old model. But if you think of uh, the more general uh, challenge that we face, um, and I would say the challenge faced by everyone who considers themselves part of the political center or progressives, uh, it is that of reinventing the politics of the center yeah. and reinventing progressivism, economic progressivism, so that it's not about protecting incumbents. And there are lessons to be derived from the United States and elsewhere. Because the most innovative economy in the world is the United States, in a whole range of industries, most especially in software, but even in many areas of advanced manufacturing in many of the services industries. And there are some lessons there about not protecting incumbents and allowing market competition to work. How can we combine those lessons, both through state policy as well as actively fostering a capital market with a takeover mechanism and allowing the markets to work? How do we combine that with a sense of solidarity among citizens, which is deeply embedded in the European tradition. Whether it's centre-right or centre-left in Europe, it's basically that same tradition. A high regard for fellow citizens, regardless of what job they're doing, and a, and a sense of respect for each other. I think it can be combined. I don't think those two things are antithetical. And if you look at Sweden today, it's a very interesting example. They're producing unicorns. But they are a society with a very strong sense of uh, a very high regard for each other. Um, it helps that they're 800 years old. Singapore's 53, 52. <laughs> it helps they're an old society and, in fact, a very homogenous society. But, you know, there's something to it. And I would say all of us must seek to evolve our models so that we are always spurred, each generation must be spurred to innovate, avoid protecting incumbents, but you must preserve that sense of responsibility to each other in society. So it requires a reinvention of the social democratic model, and I think that will be a plus for Europe and a plus well beyond Europe. And it can be achieved. And I would also say that both in the US and in Europe, both in the Anglo-Saxon world and in Europe, we've got to focus a little more on social mobility than on inequality per se. Inequality offends all of us, particularly when it's extreme. But the, the solution that gives people a sense of hope and gives them spirit is not just direct, the direct addressing of inequality, which you can always do through some redistribution, but it doesn't create a sense of hope. The solutions that give hope are when you give people real opportunity to, sure. to discover the strengths in themselves and to discover the strengths in their communities. Sure. That's what we've got to focus a lot more on. <clears throat> Second question, yes, there is a legacy today 
in many societies, in many multicultural societies, and you're no longer upstream. But uh, if we don't address legacies now, they will get larger. Exactly. And, and that's a very, it's, it's a very salient point in today's world. Uh, put another way, um, you know, in economics and financial markets, you've got something called reversion to the mean. Something is overvalued, eventually the market equilibrates and the price comes back down to, to the norm. If something's undervalued, eventually people discover value, investors move in and the price moves up. In social culture, there is no reversion to the mean. People can grow more and more apart from each other. Class differences can become more ossified and the problems can get deeper and knottier than before. And where we are starting from today, although it's not upstream, like when Singapore formulated its housing policies mm. in the 70s especially, it can get a lot worse in the years to come. And again, there are some strategies. There are strategies in which today's banlios and today's concentrated neighbourhoods and deprived neighbourhoods can go through regeneration. There are ways in which we can crowd in private capital, but with public urban planning. There are ways in which it can be done. There's the discomfort of moving people, but there are ways of giving them choice. You can't force people to move. But it requires a certain activism and a certain conviction that this is just so important for our societies. To, to generalise, and I'm moving to your third question now, mm. uh, we now all have a challenge of <clears throat> working out sustainable models of multiculturalism. It used to be that Europe was basically homogenous societies and you got together yeah. in the European Union, but now in most parts of the world, for better or for worse, uh, we are multicultural. And Singapore is the most religiously diverse country in the world. I think the lessons coming out of the last 30 and 40 years, from your initial waves of gustabiters to second generation and third generation uh, immigrants today, there are some lessons. Uh, first, the passive multiculturalism, where you let people bloom in their own communities. It had great appeal in the 70s and 80s in Britain and parts of Europe. And it hasn't worked very well. And you only discover that downstream. You discover that later. Today in Britain, 50% of Muslims live in the bottom 10% of neighbourhoods by, by income. That's the natural workings of society. The passive multiculturalist model hasn't worked. But neither will a forcible assimilation of people. It is no longer possible to go down that route. You, you could do it for a first generation of immigrants who was happy to come to get a job and were basically economic migrants, but it's not going to work for the second generation and it's not going to work in today's world where you have globalization of religious strife, which is a new phenomenon. 
it's a new phenomenon and a, and a powerful phenomenon where people anywhere in the world can be influenced over the internet and can flip within days. So it requires neither the passive multiculturalism, which can lead to more divided societies, nor the forcible assimilation of people. It requires a model where we respect people's faiths, give them some space, but ensure that every child grows up with enough common space inhabiting their lives, with enough interaction inhabiting their lives. And every neighbourhood affords that interaction. And we've got to make sure that labour markets work because that's still critical. Even in Germany, which is doing a much better job at uh, integrating people than France and some other societies, even in Germany, there was a very interesting study done not long ago by the, um, it's called SV something, it's a National Council for Integration, for Integration, that's right. And they did a very interesting study. Some of these studies have been done in the United States as well, where you send out job applications and one of them has got a German name, one has a Turkish name, but it's the same, exactly the same description. And you get marked differences in response, uh, either outright rejection or, you know, and, and so on and so forth. And that's the natural workings of society. Labour markets are critical for minorities, for women, and today, increasingly for the young. Labour market flexibility has to be a progressive strategy. It's not a right-of-centre strategy. It's a progressive strategy because it provides the best opportunities for people who start off with less. So that's on multiculturalism tied up with economic strategy, especially labour markets. Finally, on trade, um, I think you ask a good question. <coughs> I would first say that um, you know, there's, there's some things which, uh, which we have to accept uh, as economists and as politicians uh, are, are true, which is that all countries actually benefit from trade and from specialization, but the benefits are distributed unequally within each society. And some countries do a better job than others at finding ways in which the benefits can be distributed well. And it doesn't happen automatically through the market mechanism. So that's the second lesson. Globalization delivers benefits for all countries that are superior to closed economies or semi-closed economies, but the distribution is unequal and we've got, you need active state intervention. In, in a sense, state intervention to enable markets to work better in order that the game can carry on. And that's the, the, the sense in which the inconvenient domestic fact of globalization is far more important than globalization per se. I would say what we are seeing today is uh, politics having caught up with the facts of domestic inequality and the facts that especially cities and towns that were disadvantaged by technological change and globalization were left to fester with their problems. Politics has caught up with it. But unfortunately, politics is a way of also doing more than catching up. It is a way of overshooting. Uh, 
And that's what we have to be aware of today, is that overshooting an exaggeration of the problems and the finding of the wrong solutions. We will know it's wrong before it's long, because everyone is interested in national interests, by the way. National interest is what shapes our policies. But the reason why we are open to the world, the reason why we want to specialize, the reason why we want to keep adjusting to global competition and moving out of areas we are no longer competitive in is because we can then keep growing better jobs in our society. And we'll soon realize that populist strategies or strategies that start moving yourselves away from the world are not going to create jobs or better jobs, better quality jobs. But the overshooting in the meantime can create damage for everyone. Okay. So I, th I think indeed uh, the damage, I mean, the, the damage will be seen, but I think it will take a few years. And in those few years, a lot of much deeper damage can, can happen. So, but anyway, let me, let me open to the audience and um, please uh, state your name and, and raise, your, uh, raise your question. And I see Nicola starting. Yeah, uh, Nicolette Veron here at Google, and also at the Peterson Institute in Washington. Uh, thank you very much uh, uh, for a very uh, inspiring and, I think, uh, for all of us, very impressive uh, presentation. Uh, I have two questions. Uh, one is, you emphasize the importance of local government activism, and uh, Singapore being a small country is sort of classified local. in the same category. Uh, here we are in Brussels. How much scope do you see for economic and social policies at the European level, uh, given all the emphasis you put on local uh, policy to uh, respond to the inconvenient fact of globalization? And can you give us a sense of where you would see the division of, the division of labor or subsidiarity principle, as we call it here, uh, in uh, the case of the European Union? Uh, so second question is a bit different. Uh, in Exposing at the beginning of your speech the reasons for the political phenomenon we see in various places and most recently in the US, uh, you mentioned a number of factors, but one you didn't mention is the chance in the world map, to put it that way. You're placed as the interface between East Asia and, uh, and much of the rest of the world. How, and in your perception, how much did the rise of China, uh, how much of a factor was that in the US election? How, how, how much is the slogan, make America great again, really uh, a way of saying uh, we don't like being over, uh, overtaken by China the way we are right now? So, so how do you feel about this particular way of looking at the recent election? Thank you very much. Okay, so we collect a few of you. Sure. Right. So, so I, I have um, the ambassador from India. Thank you, Gunter. Uh, I want to thank you very much, because you asked exactly what I wanted to ask you. But let me build on that. Uh, Mr. Deputy Prime Minister, you have uh, spoken in my country, lectured all the civil servants. All of us saw you on the virtual, on the internet. Uh, you are a role model state for all of us. We admire you. And the business of you know, local action and its importance, I think, is something that many of us are learning and appreciating and understanding. Europe perhaps learned it uh, a long time back. 
I want to, you know, uh, take off from what our colleague here asked you, the rise of China, which sort of summarizes this. You know, much of your talk, of course, uh, centered with Singapore as the anecdotal point, <coughs> is about what's happening in developed economies, developed societies. Yeah. In a sense, many of us would call it the old world. If there is no inherent, you know, imbalance or some kind of push towards imbalance, inequilibrium, how are we going to get our place in the sun? How are we going to manage this? I'm not saying that they shouldn't get their policies right. If they don't get their policies right, that's pretty bad for me. Stability in Europe, going ahead, growth is perhaps the best thing for a country like India. But on the other hand, there has to be some kind of an adjustment to what really should be a better equilibrium for the entire world and not just for those who've had it for all times to come. Because otherwise, what are we going to be? I mean, surely by our own self, purely an internal consumption market, that's not going to be a very easy and easily uh, doable task. Anyway, I think I've said what I had to say. Thank you very much, uh, also Guntram, for getting this together, and your ambassador for giving <laughs> us the honor of having you, Mr. Deputy Prime Minister, amongst us. Yeah, thank you. Let's get one, one third question, the gentleman behind. Sure. Yeah, thank you. thank you so much for your presentation. My name is Moni from uh, European Institute of Asian Studies. Um, <coughs> I have just uh, three questions for you. The first one is the following. Um, do you notice any income differential uh, in terms of uh, employment of males and female, uh, men and women in Singapore? And how do you address it? Second question is, uh, Singapore is becoming a major financial hub in Asia. Uh, attracting uh, high-paid uh, salary, high-paid jobs from Europe and also banks, uh, whatever, from Europe and from the U.S. Do you think that this may have a distorsive effect on your uh, labor market uh, and income differentiation? The third issue is that uh, Singapore has the ambition to play a, a role of uh, uh, the, I mean, a locomotive role in ASEAN. Uh, and, uh, um, and the ASEAN region. Uh, do you think that your model may be interesting, uh, your model in terms of social inclusion, whatever, may be interesting to inspire the ASEAN, uh, ASEAN policies in the same field, valid to the countries, uh, to the countries in uh, Southeast Asia? Thank you so much. So if you agree, we take one more, and then, sure. and then, uh, and then I think we close the, oh, you also had, Okay. Is it okay? So two more, sure, and then sure. and then be close. Oh, okay, mine will be a, a, a really P one, please introduce one yourself. Yes, um, sorry, Moisa, I'm a member of the European Parliament, and incidentally also the chairman of the Friends of Singapore uh, group in the European Parliament. So thank you for an absolutely brilliant presentation. I wish we had more leaders in Europe of that depth and sophistication. <laughs> uh, that you have uh, you have just uh, displayed here today. I have one question on a another global mega trend, as far as I as far as I believe, uh, the issue of automation. Mm -hmm. you know, routine jobs. There is strong evidence and many studies and ever more studies suggesting that automation is replacing more and more routine jobs throughout the developed world and not only. And that has an effect both on, on, on the salaries of the middle classes, but also, interestingly, on social mobility. So basically, the social ladder might be broken 
by these, the, the automation, which is both putting pressure on, on, uh, on, uh, on the salaries of the middle classes, and most of the people, or many of the people, not being able to have middle class jobs because of automation, rather than moving up, they end up moving down uh, to, to lower paid jobs. And this is also interesting against the backdrop of the uh, trend that you, or, you know, the, the policy that you, you, you envisage or you encourage of uh, you know, vocational uh, education versus uh, higher education. The, the intuition behind many of our policies is that basically to help people up, you push them towards higher education because the society of the future would require skills which are you know, higher, more sophisticated skills than than you would have uh, you know, in, in, in the normal vocational type of education. So could we be in a situation when basically the technological and economic structure of our societies makes it, I'm being sort of trying to be challenging here, uh, makes it almost impossible for us to have middle classes? Because, because there wouldn't be enough jobs for those. Or in any case, not mm -hmm. in all of our societies, not throughout the Western world or throughout the world. Maybe some people would manage to have enough clusters of good jobs anyway to have solid middle classes. But could it be that it would simply be impossible? Why not? I mean, is it written anywhere that uh, this could not be a, a, a structure of society and economies that we could end up with? And of course, that would pose huge challenges for democracies. Okay, so now we have the last question here, and then, uh, then I think you have enough material to speak for another half an hour. <laughs> I, I will be brief. Uh, uh, my name is Sanjeev Kumar. I'm the founder of Change Partnership, an NGO focused on climate change. Again, just like in the last sentiment, it's, it's a real pleasure to hear you speak. I could listen to you all day long and follow your tweets. Please, please, uh, we need some uh, inspiration. I have one observation and one question. Um, in your bigger uh, uh, initially uh, kind of four main trends that are happening across the world, um, one of the things I think that you didn't touch upon is the fact that we've been unable to have discourse. And it's the lack of discourse in the UK, for example, where you've had extreme vitriolic hostility. In fact, a politician was actually murdered on the streets of, of the UK. And this, is, this is really frightening things. Um, and I, I'm interested to know how you have discourse and planning and vision building within Singapore and what are the kind of lessons we can learn from you mm. that may be applicable here. Um, I want to uh, uh, also ask a question um, in terms of your, your industrial policy. You said there's a lot of emphasis in terms of lifelong learning and the, the skills, uh, the, the future skills credit or something, um, something like that. Could you tell us a little bit about the economics of that, if that's possible? Is this a significant portion of the, uh, uh, the, the budget of the country? What is, the, is it open to competition? Um, is, it open, is it access to just people from Singapore, but also people who may migrate there and so on and so forth? Thank you. Okay, great. Okay, thank you. Well, uh, first on uh, what can be done um, within the European Union itself, um, uh, in other words, within the competence of the uh, European Commission, the Parliament, and um, uh, in the Union, as distinct from respective member states. So I'm obviously not an expert in this, but I will say, first, there is an opportunity today for Europe to be a leader in pursuing free trade agreements around the world, and Asia is the most important market to look at. There's an opportunity to have high-quality trade agreements. We should start with Singapore. Starting with the already concluded <laughs> Singapore agreement, which just needs to be ratified. 
Um, and I, it's a very serious point. Right. Because it's not just about tariffs and trade, as you know. It's about everyone leveling up. Uh, and it's about a deep integration that we are able to achieve. And uh, in today's world, uh, I think one of the positives coming out of the negatives is the fact that uh, we're all realizing that something's at risk in a very serious way. And there's an opportunity for leadership and a mm -hmm. need for leadership. Mm -hmm. And Europe is in a position to develop that, to preserve multilateralism, but to take it forward. That's one very important issue. Second, and I'm here I'm speaking without full knowledge, <coughs> uh, one of the things the United States hasn't done very well is in what it calls uh, trade adjustment policies, which is a system of ensuring that workers who are displaced are helped to get back into the market with the right training and investment in there in new skills. Um, I don't know how it works in Europe and whose competence that is, but there's a sense in which Europe, because it's an integrated economic entity, has to respect the fact that through market competition, and a large part of your trade is within Europe, some regions are going to lose out while others gain. Um, and if you leave this entirely to the responsibility of uh, national governments, you need some form of common subsidy to fuel it, um, at the very least. Uh, but it also creates uh, a sense of solidarity, that we're going to maximize the opportunities for trade and we're going to help everyone who loses or is left out from the benefits. Um, second, on your point about China, which is, I think, uh, 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 a point that uh, uh, is more complex than often recognized. First, uh, something we all have to accept and if you look at the United States, which is what you are referring to, um, uh, Chinese imports account for a very small proportion of job losses, even in manufacturing. The best study uh, has been done by David Autor at the MIT and several collaborators. And it found that there was a more significant impact than was previously thought. But that significant impact was 5 million jobs. Mm -hmm. um, that firstly is a, not a very large fraction of the total job loss in manufacturing. Uh, secondly, that's five million jobs cumulatively over a period of time, something more than 10 years. And you have to understand that in the United States each year, uh, something like 200,000 jobs are created and 200,000 jobs are lost. And 200 million jobs are created and 200 million jobs are lost. So it's a it's five million is not a very large number. Did I get that number wrong about the United States? But anyway, leave aside whether... Consider the total population of the United States. No, so, sorry, 200,000. Yeah. 200,000, sorry. 200, sorry. That's why I was worrying. 200,000 in either direction. The gross numbers are very large. But the total number of jobs lost in manufacturing vastly exceeds five million. And the reason is automation. The number of... Right. The number of if you look at Chinese manufacturing alone in China, you've had a remarkable growth of manufacturing over the years, not much growth of jobs, because no, China itself is automated. Technological change drives That's right. a lot of the... So we know that. However, to merely say that underestimates the impact of import penetration on politics. Exactly. And there is a more recent study, by the way, instantly by David Otto as well, together with exactly. a couple of collaborators in December. It's an NVR paper. Yes 
which does fascinating study of the election results. Um, and it looks at it by, by congressional district. And it finds a, uh, certainly a very significant correlation between import penetration, uh, including Chinese imports, uh, and the way the vote goes. Mm -hmm. Now, this is despite the fact that actual job losses, uh, which is the first study, and that's uncontentious, are not that large because some jobs are lost, some others are created, and that actual job losses from import competition were not as large, not anywhere near what technology did. So don't neglect the politics. And it flips the and median voter, basically. And it flips so the median voter. Bit of, no. So we can't be in denial about, about that. That's the way people perceive things. But it has to be addressed. <coughs> politics cannot be carried by the drift of the popular mood. It has to be addressed. We have to actually address people's anxieties and have economic and social strategies that truly help them. So that's, that's my answer to that, that second question. Your question about the emerging markets is a very large one. Convergence is not assured. It has never been assured. Some Asian countries are doing a much better job at it than others. China has been the great success story coming after the four smaller newly industrializing economies. India is now catching up. And I believe what you said is extremely important, which is that you can't carry on uh, on this convergence path just by stimulating internal consumption. And the reasons are not just because of size of demand. The reasons are ultimately about the supply side. When you open up to the world, you're unlocking a different logic of skills upgrading and innovation compared to if you're serving your own market. And whether it's Latin America's import substitution in the 60s or India's long experiment with a softer form of import substitution, uh, it protects incumbents. It doesn't grow many jobs, and it stifles innovation. And the new India is an India that's opening up to the world and unleashing a supply-side dynamism. It's not about domestic demand versus external demand. It's a new supply-side <coughs> dynamism. And I think that really has to be the strategy going forward. Even in a world with all the problems that we're talking about, it's better to export more and import more for a given amount of world demand than to export less and import less. Same trade balance, same global demand, but when you export more and import more, it's a different supply-side logic that comes in its wake. Um, the fact that we are a, a financial hub, the fact that we've got a, we are a global hub of sorts and we attract talent and enterprise, not just Singaporeans, but from around the world, does mean that as a, as a city that plays a hub role, you have a certain degree of inequality that's higher than the norm. Not as high as China, not as high as some, uh, a few of the advanced economies, but we are at the higher end of the scale. It makes a big difference that incomes are rising, so that median incomes are rising and low those in the lower quartile, the lower decile of the income distribution, their incomes too are rising. When that stops, inequality becomes a much more salient feature in people's minds. Second point is social mobility. Today in Singapore, if you're born to parents who are in the 
bottom 20% of incomes, there's a roughly 14% chance of you ending up in the top 20% of incomes. In the US, it's about 7% chance. In the UK, slightly higher. In Denmark, it's about 11% or so. But in Singapore, it's about 15%. If everything was perfectly equal, and you had complete social mobility, if you're born in the bottom 20%, you have a 20% chance of ending up in the top 20%. But there's no society like that. And in Singapore, there's still a certain fluidity. If you don't have that fluidity, income inequality becomes uh, a very potent force. But if you have that fluidity, people don't despise those who made it, who made it rich because there's still that churn in society. But if the only people who make it rich are those who started off rich, then you get a very pernicious and unsustainable uh, culture. And it's also wrong. <coughs> it's just not the type of society we want. So that's what we've got to concentrate on. ASEAN, it's not a high-speed train, although, by the way, we are building high-speed trains. But um, <laughs> uh, it's, it's, a, it's a locomotive. <coughs> Singapore is not, just, not a locomotive behind ASEAN, but ASEAN is moving in the right direction. It doesn't have some of the advantages of the European Union of having strong governance, standards at the centre and governance, but there's very little chance of it getting completely derailed. And that's precisely because it's not a top-down strategy in ASEAN. It's a very bottom-up strategy, uh, building closer trade, closer integration of, uh, in, in, amongst investors and firms, and gradually seeking harmonisation. Slower process, but less risky over time. Um, the whole issue of automation is a, is a fundamental one for all of us. Um, we, between the Robert Gordon view and the <laughs> Eric Brinjolson uh, view, honestly, we don't know what the answer will be. We don't know whether technology is going to be a net destroyer of jobs 10 or 15 years from now, or a net creator. And it's no use just saying that, look, it's always worked out well in history. Agriculture was uh, decimated as far as jobs were concerned, and industry took over, and so on and so forth. Because history doesn't need to keep repeating itself. So we do not know what will happen, but let me put it this way. What happens will depend on what we do today. There are two stories of what's been happening to, if you look at what's happening today. Yes, jobs are being lost at the middle, particularly routine jobs, as you say. But there's another story, which is a great shortage of people with the skills that enable them to fill middle-class jobs. There's a tremendous shortage. In the US, where job polarization is most pronounced, there's also a huge shortage of people in the middle for good quality jobs in advanced manufacturing, in healthcare, in a range of other areas. A shortage of people. People haven't been trained for it. Too many of them have got a generalized college education and they, they're not attractive to employers. So it depends on what we do today. And I think there's an opportunity today for us to end up as close as possible to an Eric Brinjolson world where technology basically has a way of creating a new dynamism and new types of jobs are created. But it depends entirely on public policy and on this cluster-based strategies 
between educational institutions, employers, and the public sector to be able to create the jobs of the future and not just protect what, what already exists. I think the, um, uh, that appealing idea that it, surely it helps for people to have a higher education um, in a world where technology is more, going to be more of a factor. Uh, that's true in the sense of higher skills. But it isn't true in terms of everyone going for a four-year college education of an academic orientation. I mentioned some data earlier. Even the data about college premium uh, is rather misleading. Uh, it's, the data keeps getting used in the United States because they've got very good data there on it. But the reason why the college premium has widened in the US, in other words, the median college graduate compared to the median high school graduate, high school graduate is because the median high school graduate has seen a decline in real income. It's not because college education has been doing wonderfully. In fact, the median college grad has seen very little increase in real incomes. Secondly, if you go below the median and look at the lower quartile, the lowest quartile of college grads, bottom 25%, they have barely any premium over the median high school grad. And, and barely perhaps, any premium. Perhaps if I can add on that point, the college premium in many European countries is actually hasn't grown but has, has fallen. And what you can see in the US data also is that the college premium, and let me point you to uh, our study on uh, an anatomy of inclusive growth in Europe. And you know, one of the things we are showing there is that the college premium in, in the US is quite high in a few specific sectors. And these sectors are often sectors which are not related to technological change or so on, but rather to heavy government uh, intervention and regulations. So, so I think the story of the college premium is actually a very important story, but it's a very, very uh, unclear, as you said, very unclear uh, story. So I would also be warning against the idea, let's just all have college uh, uh, degrees to, 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 get, to gain that higher premium. I think that would certainly not work. And on your final question about discourse, I think it's a very broad one. Um, we all have to think quite deeply about what's happening uh, in the polarization of this clause and the way in which um, social media algorithms are keeping us within the pools of similar opinion. Indeed. Um, I think the social media is a great plus uh, for danger. people's participation and engagement in public life. Uh, but we do need to have a convergence back towards the center. And that requires, you know, it's not just a matter of politics. It's require of civil, it requires civil society leadership. It requires, as people grow up, having that, in, that regular practice of discussing issues to do with what's happening in school, what, as you get older, what's happening outside school, to have that discourse amongst each other. How you grow up does matter uh, greatly. And particularly when we talk about multi-ethnic societies, how you grow up together. Uh, matters greatly. And I'll save the answer on the skills future credit and the economics of it for another time because it's, uh, it's um, uh, uh, a technical issue. But it's, let me put it this way. This is a good investment. This is a good investment. The parts that are obviously a good investment involve worker training uh, on the job and close to the job, but even giving people an account for them to use at their own will in areas that interest them 
is a good investment. It makes for a better society. Okay, Taman, thank you so much. Uh, and please join me in thanking the Deputy Prime Minister for our <laughs> generous. <laughs>